2008, as we all remember, was pretty tough. How does 2020 compare? In what ways is it similar and in which ways is it very different? So the, I mean, the similarity is massive negative shocks, you know, big falls of um, GDP, big increases of unemployment. So in that sense, kind of similar, um, you know, a need for, you know, government protection and stimulation of the economy to bring us through in that sense, similar as well. But a big difference, I guess, or one of the big differences is that in, in a way, the, the 2008 crash, although it was very large, was like other recessions. It was, there was a, you know, a, a clear economic cause of that, which was the kind of financial crisis and the banking crisis, which um, obviously hit the banks first, but then spilled over to the real economy. The difference with the pandemic is that I mean, this is a, you know, a health, a, a, a crisis of people's um, you know, biological welfare. And the economic, the main negative economic impact has come because the government has, all over the world, quite rightly responded to the health crisis by shutting down the economy in various ways. So that is in order to you know, prevent the spread of the virus. But the, the the kind of big first order negative economic effect has been a kind of choice governments have made that in order to protect people's lives and look after the health and also the perhaps the long run um, benefits of the economy, you have to take a you know a big negative um, short run hit by having lockdowns by having restrictions over what, what people do. So, so if think, you're gonna yeah. if you're gonna draw an analogy of it being like a car. 2008 was like it running out of petrol, no liquidity, ha-ha. Whereas 2020 is more like the government actually taking the car off the road onto the hard shoulder and stopping it, you know, saying you aren't going to be moving at the moment for other reasons. Yes, like take, siphoning off all the petrol so you can't go any further. Or encouraging people strongly to do that, of course, because... Uh, you know, one of the differences you can't force you can't force people not to get in the car and drive. It was very difficult to do that, but you can certainly make it very, 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 very unpleasant for them to do it. And you know, to a large part, people have been been doing that, obeying obeying the rules. But the difference, I suppose, this year, of course, and why we're speaking is it's a twin-headed threat, isn't it? Um, we've got Brexit in the UK on the back of COVID, and you've written interestingly in your blog about why you think that the longer-term economic effects of Brexit are actually going to be considerably worse than those of COVID. Why do you think that? One of the big differences is, I mean, if, if you think about, you know, go, going back to your analogy of, the, you know, the, of, of bringing the car on the hard shoulder, you can restart the car up again, you know, put the keys in ignition and, and getting up. And, you know, if, the, if you get the right set of policies to support our kind of re-emergence into the uh, into into the into the motorway, you, in principle, can get things back to normal again, um, because there's nothing which has, in some sense, fundamentally economically changed. Brexit is different because there is a fundamental economic change. By leaving the EU, we have uh, effectively are going to increase the cost of doing business with our you know major trading partners, our, our large neighbours. The COVID shock is a big, hard, you know, quick negative shock. The Brexit shock, you know, depending on what deal we may or may not strike in the next week with the EU, will still be a negative shock. But the real harm is what happens over time 
as the UK drifts further apart from the EU, because, you know, the main impediments to trade are not just about tariffs, which, you know, likely there'll be some, but also will be the divergent rules and regulations which happen between the UK and the rest of the EU. What do you think Mrs Thatcher, if she were around now, would have thought of the process of Brexit, its necessity and the way in which the negotiation has been conducted and the possible outcome? That's a very hard question to know. You know, Mrs Thatcher, interestingly, went through two phases. So she was very pro-common market, you know, when we first joined. Um, for the reasons she thought rightly that it would inject more competition into the in, in, into the UK, which it certainly helped to do, and then obviously, as like I mentioned, she helped you know build the single market and start trying to reduce some of those barriers. But then, of course, as she went on, she became more critical of the European Union because of the you know what you know what she thought were the kind of increasing amounts of regulation coming out of Brussels. I, I, I suspect she would have been surprised at how you know seemingly relaxed uh, many of the brexiters like boris johnson are about those increasing costs of doing business which are going to be erected between the uk and the rest of the eu and she would have put a bigger i think emphasis on the importance of those but of course you know she was always a big one for sovereignty too so you know she she may also be somebody who would be very uh you know you know, very um, aggressive about, uh, you know, British sovereignty. But she was a serious-minded politician, and I wonder what she would have thought about the peak uncertainty, as the FT described it last week, 30, less than 30 days left now before we go, with no deal. She would be, you know, disappointed at how... uh, you know how business businesses' interests have been have been uh, not taken into account. I mean, she, I, you know, she and I think every economist is kind of surprised that there's that we seem to be potentially floundering on the fishing industry, which is like you know employs 0.1 percent of people, and we seem to more or less forgot about the financial services industry, which is you know provides huge amounts of resources in terms of you know tax revenues to the UK and jobs and and, and high wages. So that. I think is, uh, you know, a mistake and a surprise. And I, the other thing, I suppose, is just the shambolic way in which the negotiations have been conducted and the fact that you know, still we're in the last chance saloon and we still don't know really what's going to happen. I mean, that's, uh, you know, a, com- a complete failure of statecraft. You've described a no deal or the possibilities of a deal as a pig paraded around in lipstick. Why do you think that? There will be a deal. Um, and I think when the deal comes, it will be a pig paraded around a lipstick. And the the fact is, people will be so relieved that you know we've we've avoided no deal. Where people, you know, the, the media and everybody will latch on to the the kind of skinny, it's less than it's kind of anorexic deal, which will probably come through, which will um, be you know a, a minimal, a very minimal thing. And the reason it's a uh, it, it, it's a disappointment is that. You know, whatever we that kind of skinny deal we we strike at best is only going to mean that we have low tariffs or zero tariffs on many goods and services. It won't deal with you know the other problems that I mentioned that you know there will be um, still the need, still the need for lots of 
checks on rules of origin and red tape as goods and services come in and out of Britain. It won't deal with the fact that, you know, over time we'll get this increased divergence and increased degrees of trade cost. So the big costs of Brexit that, you know, not just myself, but people in the government have uh, focused on, or Bank of England, come from these other these other non, non-tariff costs. And they vastly, you know, outweigh any of the benefits of, you know, slightly lower tariffs, which are, you know, are good, but are not, you know, massive because the degree of the common external tariff in the EU for the rest of the world is not very big. Um, so that's the main problem that, you know, we'll imagine we've, we've kind of, you know, we've managed to save ourselves to this, this, this trade deal. But, you know, the trade deal, even at its best, is not um, a panacea for all the kind of problems that we'll face in the future. Why do you think that the government believes that COVID will make Brexit easier? Is it because it will look like, um, you know, a little bit of good news amidst the kind of gloom that we've endured for the last nine months? As we are suffering so much from COVID in terms of the big drop of economic output, the increase of unemployment, the additional pain from a Brexit will seem like, you know, small beer, by the size, by you know, but given the size of all the other problems of COVID, so I think the government's uh, view and you know other other people who are pro, very pro Brexit is that the kind of negative effects of Brexit won't be noticed because there is so much uh, other chaos and pain and misery going on, which you know I think is partly true. I mean, I suppose the Farages and the kind of the hard wing of the Conservative Party would say that we've got these bright, sunny uplands to look forward to. Now we're going to be, you know, on our own, free of any kind of interference from the European court and all the rest of it. And that we, you know, can make our own luck now by doing things differently. How does that play with you as an argument? It, it's, it's never been very convincing to me because, you know, the, the, the great new freedoms, what exactly are they? I mean, what some people like Farage would point to, well, we can have a, a bonfire of the regulations, you know, we can uh, reduce our regulations in labour and in environmental standards that are coming out of Brussels. But if you look at, you know, for example, the, 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 the OECD publishes, you know, these measures of regulation, Britain already has, you know, one of the least regulated economies, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the club of rich countries. Do we want to, you know, and, and even if we could reduce regulations, how, how much do we want to reduce environmental regulations and labour regulations? I don't see a great appetite to do that out there. Secondly, all the wonderful trade deals we'll be able to strike with the rest of the world. The fact is the European Union is still, you know, going to be our biggest trading partner because they're right next to us. We'll lose new deals, which the EU might strike with new partners. You know, the off-touted deal with the United States is, is going to be a lot harder now Donald Trump is not in the White House and you have Joe Biden who's pretty sympathetic to, you know, to Ireland and the rest of the EU. America is going to demand quite a lot for access to its markets. The good deal with the US are orders of magnitude smaller than the losses that we have because we'll no longer have the same you know, access to the largest single market in the world with the rest of the European Union. Do you detect, I mean, certainly... The surveys have suggested that over the last year, then public opinion has swung more for Remain, although it's a bit late for that, isn't it? I mean, I guess the best hope 
I have is that, you know, we instead of going for this ultra hard Brexit that we're moving towards, that over time we realize the cost of that and we kind of um, try and negotiate a, a closer, soft, you know, softer Brexit type of relationship. But, but also, it, surely it isn't in Europe's interest to beat us to a pulp, is it? I mean, they still want us to buy their goods and services, and they, they, they realise it's a sort of a two-way street. And certainly, you know, when I've spoken to people like Howard Davies last, last week about the fish thing, the point he made was that the French get as ugly about fish as we do because it's, got, you know, it's beyond any kind of economic rationale. It's, it's, it's a sort of totemic political thing. I, I don't think that we should think of this as Europe wanting to beat us, beat us up. Particularly, I mean, this this divergence that we'll we will get for trade will be mainly because of the UK diverging in in in, in lots of directions from the rest of the Euro- European Union. The risk the risk that we have is that uh, some things you think you can is, are easy to do deals with than others. I mean, you know, there, you know, I, I do think there will be some agreement over the rights of fishing other things are much harder though so you know one of the sticking points in terms of getting an agreement is 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 trust so you know if you agree to have some degree of alignment of rules and then all of a sudden one side you know says okay i'm going to tear those up what do you do what's the mechanism for mm-hmm. getting an agreement and i think that's also a, a big part of the sticking rules i mean there's a fundamental lack of trust i think that has developed between the rest of europe and, and, and boris johnson there's a lot of goodwill on both sides to do a deal. I mean, people can see the, you know, the, the benefits of doing a deal, which is why I really hope that happens. Now, finally, you mentioned the T word trust, which is always of interest. Where do you think this current government sits then in terms of its public attitudes towards trust? And one of the things that we've always thought at Jericho is that, that competence has an awful lot to, to do with it, that you know you say what you do and you do what you say. And I wonder how those twin things of trust and competence, how people think about the current regime and our prime minister when, when they think about trust and competence. The government has kind of lost, uh, lost some of its, uh, its credibility. I think on the competence thing, it's clear under COVID, you know, the, the, the government has made some really catastrophic mistakes just deciding too late to go into the kind of lockdowns that other countries have done, not just once but twice. Not being able to get a track and trace system, you know, never mind world beating, just, you know, acceptable, um, rolled out. It's also gone beyond that in the sense that there is a feeling that, you know, there's one rule for some people, another rule for others. And I think the whole Dominic Cummins fiasco really brought that home to people that they were obeying the rules and that suddenly it was the case that if you happen to be a well-placed senior government advisor, you could uh, get away with, with breaking those rules both in the terms of are you on my side and in the terms of being, you know, competent, those, both of those things have contributed to a kind of, you know, diminution and erosion of trust in this government. We're particularly intolerant in the UK of, of hypocrisy, aren't we? I suppose that's why we're such great cures. One rule for us and one rule for the others is something that goes down particularly badly here, doesn't it, in this country, that, 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 that sense of if you make the rule, then we're not particularly Christmas. religious, but we do have a religion over fair play, decency, <laughs> and you know, standing standing in line. So I, I yeah, and no, I think that that is going to be a, a real problem.